Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Good to see you. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now online or at one of our off-site campuses or maybe one of the venues in the chapel or the warehouse here. We're glad that you guys are here also and uh, we're enjoying some beautiful fall weather. Uh, it's hot and humid just like it is in the summertime and uh, well, it's October. <laughs> so, so how many of you how many of you would say, I really, really, really enjoy going to the doctor for a checkup? How many of you would say that's, so, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> work for a medical field. Yeah, right, okay. Most of us would say, oh, that's a little, that's a little scary. I've got a lot of friends that are doctors. Uh, the doctors who deal with my body and various parts of it are most of them seacoasters and friends. I, I like, my policy is I want my doctors and my hair person to come to the church because that way they have a vested interest in me living and looking good. You understand what I'm saying? And so uh, anyway, when you go to the doctor <clears throat> for a checkup, they have a number of tools. Uh, right here, I have, I have one. I, you can't see. Well, I'm, I'm just going to, I'll get on it. First thing they do is fat shame you, and you get on a scale. And uh, what's the first thing you do, though? You wouldn't do it like I did. You take your shoes off, right? Because they weigh five pounds a piece. And then, <clears throat> then you look at the scale and you say, something's wrong here. That's 10 more pounds than I weighed this morning when I got on my scale. You know, and they have um, this one just creeps me out. I've talked about it before. This is a blood pressure cup. It's a great thing. But for me, it's of the devil. My blood pressure goes up when I see one of these approaching, you know, and then they've got a... A, th a thermometer, I saw one of those here. I don't know exactly where this one's supposed to go, but anyway, that's a <laughs> thermometer. And what they do is, if you have a problem, or if you're just trying to be healthy, they've gotta have some way to look inside from the outside to see what's going on. And then uh, they evaluate, maybe take some blood, and then uh, uh, give you a prescription, doctor will give you a prescription uh, to either fix what's wrong or, you know, help you to be healthier. Why, why do I say that? Well, we're starting a series in Revelation, and I'm going to teach today on the first three chapters of Revelation, which are exactly this. It's a checkup for a group of churches, and then it's a prescription on how they 
uh, can be healthier. And so let's talk about Revelation a little bit. First of all, uh, the book of Revelation, we start this series, the book of Revelation is written by uh, the apostle John. Uh, some of you are familiar with John. We just went through the book of John. Uh, in the book of John, uh, John writes that John uh, was the uh, apostle that Jesus loved. And we know that because he, he wrote that. Okay, he wrote that. So, something didn't come out in translation. That was supposed to be kind of funny, but really it wasn't. <laughs> and the apostle John at this point in his life <clears throat> is... Um, He's uh, marooned out on, a, on an island, uh, exiled is the word that I'm trying to look for, exiled on an island uh, because of his faith. And it's not just any island, it's the Isle of Patmos. It's a Greek isle. Anybody ever been to any of the Greek isles? Have you? This is not a bad gig. If you've got to be exiled, this isn't a bad place to go because they are beautiful. Patmos is beautiful. And so he's there, and uh, he gets a, an app. Uh, apocalyptic, <laughs> say that together, apocalyptic vision about things to come which are very, very hard to understand. Now, we're going to study the book of Revelation in three weeks. We're going to do three weeks. Can 22 chapters, can you say skim together? Skim. All right. I'm going to hit the highlights. This week, I'm going to talk about the letters to the church and talk about a letter that he might write to Seacoast. And then uh, next week, I'm going to deal with like a whole middle section of the book where it talks about seals and scrolls and moons and all of that kind of thing. And uh, here's, here, I need your help, I really do. Here's what I'd like to do. If, if you have something you're having a hard time understanding, I'm not gonna guarantee we're gonna answer it all, but it'll help me to get some reference about where to go. Send me a note, pastorgreg at seacoast.org. If you've read the book or maybe you're going through the Bible right now and you're in Revelation and you say, boy, what's up with this? Or I'd really like to know about this. It'll help me with my studies on, on where to go uh, in the next couple of weeks. But anyway, so, so that's what we're doing. And also there are some resources we have that will help. Bill Reinhardt, one of our team here, is teaching an online class on Tuesdays at 6.30 at live.seacoast.org. He's doing eight weeks in depth. He's already started. You can get some of the uh, previous lessons. They're all online. And uh, 6.30, TuesdayLive.seacoast.org. That's a good resource. Here's another one. The Armageddon Code, book I recently read, One Journalist's Quest for End Time Answers by Billy Hollowell. Here's one that's dumbed down a little bit. The Book of Revelations for Dummies. <clears throat> and uh, you might want to look at that or all else fails Google, okay? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, so that'll kind of give you some, and just dig in, dig in. It's Good stuff and a great time to do that. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit of the first chapter of Revelation, and then we'll break it down. This is some of the um, easier or actually simpler stuff. How many of you know that simple is not necessarily easy? Some of the simpler things to understand in Revelation. But let's look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. And here it is. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He says he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. 
I'm blessed today because I'm reading it aloud. And blessed are those who hear it, that's you, you're blessed too, and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. How near are we to the second coming of Jesus? I wanna talk about some of that next week. That's some of the issues that we'll be dealing with. But for today, I wanna jump down to verse 10 in chapter one, and let's get, what we'll do is we'll solve three of the first mysteries of the book of Revelation, and then I wanna get into what I, I wanna talk about. All right, here we go. I think I missed, did I miss it? No, there we go. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. What's the Lord's day? Sunday, Sunday. In the, in the New Testament church, the believers, uh, especially in the beginning, were all Jewish, and so they celebrated the Sabbath, which was Saturday, and then they would worship together on Sunday, the first day of the week. And so, it was the, and they called it the Lord's Day. He says, on the Lord's Day, I was in the spirit. He may have been by himself, or there were other believers on the Isle of Patmos. He may have been with them, but regardless, he was in the spirit. And he said, I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll talk about those churches in a minute. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And uh, here's kind of a picture of maybe what he saw. It says, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. He says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing on a, a, in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, right here, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, now we're gonna solve the mysteries. Who is this, what are these about, and what are the stars? He said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. So who is he? He's Jesus. Congratulations, you solved the first and easiest mystery of the book of Revelation. It's Jesus, all right? Then he goes on, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, there we go. The lampstands are what? They're the seven churches that he writes to. And the stars are what? They're the angels. Now, what does that mean? Angels. The word angel uh, is literally interpreted messenger. And so there are basically three kind of points of view on who they are. 
And by the way, Bill Reinhart and I, Bill who teaches this class, we don't agree on this, which is okay, because he has a right to be wrong. How many of you know that? <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway, so, so one of the answers would be literal angels. That there, how many of you believe in guardian angels? Anybody believe in guardian angels? You should make your life better. We have guardian angels, and it, uh, it, it could be that this was a guardian angel of the church, possible. Uh, a second interpretation would be, you know, he, John had to get the scrolls that he wrote on to the churches somehow so that the messengers or angels could be UPS drivers, okay? That those that delivered the message. The third possibility, and this is the one that's correct, could be that these angels were referring to the pastors of the local church. And why do I like that? Because I like being called an angel. That's not bad. And these guys are in Jesus' right hand. Now, here's the point. It doesn't make a lot of difference which one it is. Maybe we'll know someday if it's real important. And there are things like that in Revelation. There are some things that are real important to understand. And there are other things that are wide open uh, to interpretation. And so, and, 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 and so what we want to do is in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes a letter to seven churches that are in this area, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Just to give you a little idea where it is, here's Athens. If you know anything about Athens, Greece is right there. You come on over around here, and this is Turkey, current-day Turkey. Back then, it wasn't. Back then, it was Asia Minor, Galatia, all right? And uh, these churches are very real churches that are in that area. In fact, this area was Celtic. You know, and I, I'm not going to get into all of who's Celtic and who's not, but the, the uh, Celtic people were the Galatians. So anyway, we've got seven churches that he writes to. The first one is Ephesus, and that's like the main church on the continent. That's like the big church. That's the mega church. That's the church where John was a pastor. It's the church where Mary, the mother of Jesus, attended. A lot of the apostles that didn't die right away came through that particular church. And here's what he writes to that church. He says, you know, he says, you guys are cool. You guys do a lot of good stuff. But he said, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. That's his prescription. He diagnoses, and he said, here's what I see. You've lost your first love, and then he gives them away uh, to, to get healthy again. Second church is the letter to Smyrna. That's right here, just a little bit north of Ephesus. Here's what he says to them. This is Greg's paraphrase. You're doing good but things are gonna get tough. Keep your eye on the prize and you'll get through it. Keep your eye, don't get your eyes on circumstances, things are gonna get tough. You guys are doing good. Keep your eye on the prize, you will get through it, okay? Number three, the one way up here, the furthest north one, is the church at Pergamos. And we're gonna talk about that one a little bit later too. But here's what he says. He says, that's a tough city. He said, you guys are doing good in a tough city, but here's what I'm concerned about. Watch out for sexual immorality and food served to idols. We'll talk about that again a little bit later. And then he sends a message to Thyatira, and this is the other northern church. And here's what he says to them. He says, you know, there's a lot of good stuff going on with you too, but you've got some sexual immorality and some meat eating that's offered to idols going on there too. And so my observation is, is that the southern churches are a lot more holy than the northern churches. <laughs> Just a thought. Just a thought. 
We'll be teaching on the Antichrist next week, and a lot of us feel like that's Bill Belichick, and uh, I just do that to poke, poke you guys. You know I love you. Um, and then he writes a letter to Sardis, which is the fifth church right here, kind of in the middle, and he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. He said, you don't need any of this stuff. You need defibrillators. You need to put those deals on it. Wake up, he says, because you're, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. Anybody ever been to that church? And then number six is the church at Philadelphia. What does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love, that's what the, the word means. And in Philadelphia, he says, good job. You guys are doing great. Hang in there because times are tough. But he said, I have opened a door that nobody can close. And I just thought, just as a, just a little side here, there's probably two or three people here that you've been doing good, and there's some real opposition in some area of your life. And it seems like there's doors opening and then they close. And here's what, something that God wants to say to you. When God opens a door, you don't worry about it. It's not opened by your power or anybody else's power. He opens doors for us that nobody else can close. And so you can go to sleep tonight and feel good that God is working in your life. And then the last letter, and this is the roughest one, is the letter to the church at Laodicea. And here's what he says. He says, you guys are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm, and you kind of make me want to throw up a little bit in my mouth. <laughs> you don't want to be that church. You don't want to be that church, okay? And so as I was reading these, I thought, how can I teach this in a way that will be applicable to us? There's so much in there. But I thought this, what would Jesus say to Seacoast? If he was going to write a letter to Seacoast, what would he say? And I'm kind of confident he might say some of the things that I'm going to give you here because there's some of the same things that we see that he wrote to the churches in Asia Minor. And so, and so here's the first thing that I think Jesus would write to Seacoast is don't lose your first love. Don't lose your first love. Just like he wrote to Ephesus, don't lose your first love. Look at what he said. He said, you've done a lot of good things, but he said, yet I hold this against you you have forsaken the love you had at first. You're not in love with Jesus like you used to be. He said, you've forsaken it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider how far you've fallen. I want you to repent and do the things that you did at first because if you do not repent, I will come to you and I'll take your church away, okay? I'll take your church away. He says, you've lost your first love. What's that like? How do you lose your first love? You ever seen anybody lose their first love? If you're in a relationship with a group of people at work or school or wherever you've seen it. I mean, I, uh, I did a wedding a week ago. It was a part of a wedding anyway, and a family that had been in this church actually since before the church started, a girl that was born uh, while we, after we started the church. And, and uh, uh, it was so cute to watch them because newlyweds are so in love. I mean, we're up here during, doing this ceremony and they're saying stuff to one another. And I'm going, get a room, which they're going to, okay? But it's like they are just such love, you know? And then you fast forward, right? You fast forward and, and you see couples and you hear things and you go, if he said that to her, 
before they were married, do you think she would have said yes? Or if she acted like that, he wouldn't have even considered her. What's happened? They've lost their first love. In fact, I think there's three indicators, three of these, these things that you can uh, check out to see if someone's lost their first love. It's what they say. You listen to their words. It's what they do. It's their schedule. And it's, and it's where they spend their money. It's what they buy. You know, when, when you're first in love, you say all of those wonderful things, and then when you lose your first love, you say things that are hurting. When, you, when you're first in love, then you'll do anything to adjust your schedule to be with them, right? I mean, if you gotta move some things around, you'll, do, you'll go to all ends. I remember when I was courting Debbie, we had to do a lot of it over uh, telephone, and back then, telephones were attached to walls. Anybody remember that? They had this long white thing usually, or a black thing that was attached to the wall. And we had two telephones in our house, and one of them had a really, really long cord. And if I wanted to speak privately, I would have to take that telephone all the way down the hall. It would barely make it to my room, and I would go behind the door, and I'd lay down on the floor with the door, and if anybody came in the door, it would be very uncomfortable. But I was willing to do that because I was in love, and we just lay there. She on the other end and me here. Hey, baby. I'm gonna show you some of my stuff right now. Hey, baby, what's up? What you doing? You still awake? Yeah, and we'd do that for hours until dad would say, hang up for goodness sake. Because schedule was nothing. But when you lose your first love, you're busy. And you're too busy, you know, I'd love to hang out, but just a little bit too busy, you know, just a little busy. Then buying, oh my goodness, you give them anything. What, what do you want? Oh, let's get two of those. Okay, let's do it. And when you lose your first love, you become a cheap. <laughs> and the same thing happens spiritually. When, 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 when you've got a first love, you realize, I've been saved. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna, my sins are forgiven. I'm going to live forever eternal life and then after a while it's like well you know I'm kind of kind of busy you know at first it's like I man listen to word I can't I just got in, in, in church oh I want to be with the church I mean we, we you know we got three services in this campus on Sunday morning and sometimes some some of you first get saved you go can I go to all three services we say no get a life you know but you want to you want to be there. But then after a while, it's like, I, I don't have time for a small group or, you know, be around or whatever. And then money, oh my goodness. When first get saved, it's like, you want to be generous. I was talking to a guy in the foyer the other night who, the other day after service, he hadn't lost his first love. You could just see it all over him. And he brought, he said, I'm, I'm bringing a check for the new building. And it's like, great, awesome. Man, tell me about your generosity. Where did that start for you? And, and uh, he said, you know, a few years ago, you did a message on, like a 90-day tithe challenge that, you know, you uh, test God in this whole thing. And he said, we did. And, and it, it just started a, a, a thing of generosity with us. And he said, I just love to give. But you know what? When you lose your first love, you get stingy. It's like, you know, you know I don't know that I want to do that. You get stingy with God. You get stingy with the family. Even the Girl Scouts that are selling cookies, you're just a pain. You know, I mean, it's just like you insult them, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's because you've lost your first love. And here's what 
Here's what Jesus says. He said, when you lose your first love, he said, do this. Three things, remember. Remember, he says, you need to remember how far you've fallen. And this works in relationship. You know, sometimes when, when we've had a strained relationship or you've blown it or whatever, and you wanna go say, oh, I'm sorry, my bad, my bad, and your, your significant other or your spouse just doesn't wanna go there, doesn't wanna accept it, and part of the reason is because they don't feel like you felt it enough. Now, don't use that as a weapon or a tool. I'm not a counselor. But you, you do need to remember, you need to think about how far have I fallen? That's what Jesus says. You need to remember how far you've fallen. Feel this thing. And then secondly, you repent, which says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Repentance is always a good thing. It's turning around. And then the third thing you do is you redo. You go back and you redo the first things, the things that you did when you fell in love, if it's a relationship. Guys, how have you remember? You used to actually open the car door for her. Now, you look over and you say, I hope you got both legs in, I'm ready to go, boom. <laughs> you need to go back and redo and renew relationally and spiritually. And so I think one of the things that Jesus would say to Seacoast is he would say, don't lose your first love. Some of you have lost your first love. You need to turn that around. How do you do it? You just take small steps. I'm gonna encourage you during the response time today to take small steps toward God. Because if you take a small step, just, you know, we, we wanna try to do everything and we don't do anything. But just take a small step. Do the first things again. He takes a big step toward you, okay? So just uh, don't lose your first love, he'd say. Second thing he would say, I think, to Seacoast would be, would be, this. Whoa, there we go. He would say, keep serving the community. Keep serving the community. Look at this. The church at, um, which one was this? Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith. I know your service. Say service. And perseverance. Say perseverance. He says, I know your your love and faith which leads to service and perseverance and that you are now doing not just what you did at first but more than you did at first. He says, go God. He says, great job. See, churches begin to die when it becomes about them. Uh, this week I was uh, in Birmingham training, helping to train some of our new church planners. Uh, these are uh, men and women who will be planning churches next year. And there were 29 couples in this particular training. And um, they, let me tell you what they're focused on. Church planners are focused on outreach. Outreach, outreach, outreach. How can we serve? How can we? They've got to. They don't have anybody. But what happens is the lifespan of an effective church is about 15 or 20 years, and then they start to kind of decline. And, 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 it, and it becomes, a lot of it becomes, because it's less about those out there, it's more about us. You know, I, I, I want it to be, it's got to be comfortable for me. I, I want the music to be what, what I like. I know a lot of young people are coming in, but I, I, I kind of like the, the stuff that Noah did on the ark. I, 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 let's have that kind of music. And, you know, it's all about us. It's all about us. It's all about us. And when it becomes about us, we begin to die. And so he says, I love the fact that you're serving. You're serving in the church and in the community and in the world. You know, one of our values as a church is to make a difference. We've got four, four values. 
Uh, we, want, we believe that everybody needs to know God. Everybody needs to grow in their faith. Everybody needs to uh, discover their purpose and needs to make a difference. And through our inside uh, track class and other things that we do around here, we try to help you to do that because we believe everybody was created to make a major difference uh, in the world. And so what I wanted to do, I'm gonna take 90 seconds. You just hang in here with me for 90 seconds. And I'm gonna review for you some of the things that you guys are doing as a church, all of our campuses are doing as a church to make a difference in the world. So over 200 kids that we serve every year through our foster care ministry. Many of you are making a difference there. We're able to donate close to 2,000 book bags with supplies to foster children and other kids in need. We have food pantries at the Dream Center in Somerville and West and Manning, and some of you man those every week. We have an Acts 4 fund. That started in 2007 when the downturn happened, the economic downturn, and I came to you guys, and I said, okay, those of you who maybe have a little surplus, would you mind giving some of that to a fund, an Acts 4 fund, so that people in our church who don't have enough uh, can be served? And you guys give over $100,000 a year toward that, and it serves those who are maybe in a season of shortage. We partner with Habitat Humanity to build homes in communities all over Charleston. You guys have given about $115,000 in hurricane relief support to churches and organizations in Houston and in Florida. In fact, there's a team currently this weekend in Florida doing relief work. Um, you say, what are we doing about Puerto Rico? Um, we're partnering with Water Mission here in town, also with Convoy of Hope, which is an international ministry, and some Major League Baseball players from Puerto Rico on relief work in Puerto Rico, and we're doing that even as we speak. Some of our campuses serve the homeless every week. We're getting ready to open a second Dream Center medical clinic at our West Campus. I'm excited about that. Our Somerville campus has been doing prison ministry for about a decade in three different prisons. Uh, in fact... Right now, Seacoast is being broadcast every week in those three prisons. And I want to welcome those of you who are part of that right now. Every week. You're one of us. We follow up during the week, you guys know that, with Bible studies related to the message. And then Seacoast has also established a literacy program at each of the prisons, and we're helping to establish a school where inmates can earn certificates and qualifications to gain employment when they leave. That's Somerville campus. Way to go. Jesus would say, good job. I see you're serving. How about the Dream Center? Let's talk about the Dream Center for a minute. We just opened a new dream house next door to the Dream Center where we're teaching GED courses and English as a second language. We're also teaching medical coding uh, since it's a medical center, we're teaching medical things. We're teaching digital animation, some of the people here in the church who do that. I just found this out this week. This is what's cool about being pastor. You don't have to know everything. You just take credit for everything. <laughs> a, few, uh, a few years ago, uh, some people in the church were building a, a house. Uh, I don't even think it was through Habitat. It was just a small group or two came together, and they were helping somebody complete a house, and a newspaper got word of it, and so they called me. And they said, we want to talk to you about that house you guys are building. I had no clue. I said, yeah, that's a great thing, isn't it? I'll tell you what, it's just awesome. Well, this week, or a couple of weeks ago, I found out about this. I won't tell you all about how it takes too long. But in that dream house next door to the Dream Center, we're partnering with Fox Music and Yamaha. They're putting in over $200,000 worth of equipment. I think there's some of it on the screen. To open a full-blown recording studio for at-risk kids. That is awesome, isn't it? 
I'm going to expect some excellent spirit-filled hip-hop music emanating from that place, okay? We want to see that happen. That's good. I love that. These are clapping points everywhere, but you're taking my time. I'll tell you when to clap. How's that? <laughs> We're working with an organization to place students who go through these classes uh, to get them into jobs, and also a staffing agency is helping people in the neighborhood to find jobs. You guys are doing that. Every year at the Dream Center, we serve over 6,000 patients who receive quality metal, medical, dental, and vision care. 52 tons of food are distributed, thousands of articles of clothing, hundreds of prom dresses at Cinderella Day, over 4,000 hot meals at Thanksgiving, hundreds of families served through our Saturday serve, and on and on and on. In fact, uh, the one I'm most excited about, really, to be honest with you, is the E3 mentoring program, which you guys are mentoring over 80 students at North Charleston High School, where the graduation rate is right around 40%, and the E3 students are graduating at 83%. You guys are doing that and, uh, and making, that, making a difference there. In global missions, we take 35 mission trips each year. Our custom students alone sent 109 students on seven global trips. Here's what we would do as parents. Here's what we'd do as parents. When our kids got a little high maintenance, we'd send them on a mission trip, and it did wonderful things for them. <laughs> We're approaching over 5,000 people who have served on global trips. We've established and funded 24 water projects, providing, listen to this, over 120,000 people access to clean water every day. Every day, you guys are doing that. We've provided funding for four medical clinics and have sent out over 60 medical teams to serve our partners and churches over the years. This year, we funded a diabetic clinic uh, with one of our church partners in India. Uh, over 10,000 people have been impacted uh, by uh, churches in rural areas that we've helped to uh, plant in developing countries. We funded the rebuilding of schools and water projects in Haiti after Hurricane Matthew. Uh, we've uh, provided funding and established a new mission house, a well, and an agricultural project in Togo, in addition to the 11 wells and a training center already established. And we continue to work with One World Health to establish quality, affordable medical care for those in greatest needs in Uganda and Nicaragua. I wish you could all go down with me and see the medical clinics. They are unbelievable. They, they function and they work every day. Also, while we're doing that, you guys have helped to plant over 730. In fact, this week it goes over 730 life-giving churches over the last 15 years that contribute over $16 million per year to global missions and projects like what we're talking about. That is pretty good. That is pretty good. I think, I think Jesus would say, way to go, Seacoast. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And by the way, some of you are thinking about making end-of-year gifts from your businesses or maybe just in the blessing that God did uh, in your life. I can, we can help you. We can help you to multiply your global influence. And we'll be talking more about that probably in some of the weeks coming. But Jesus would say, Way to go. This is a make a difference weekend uh, here at the Long Point campus. And so campus pastor will talk to you about what you can do. But um, yeah, I'm excited about that. But let me just say this. I, I'm, not, I'm not satisfied. We believe, and we believe from the beginning, that everybody, not just a few, everybody needs to serve in the church, in the community, and in the world.
Not everybody can serve at the same pace or the same amount, but everybody serves. I see a lot of churches, I travel a lot now, and I see churches that unfortunately look like football stadiums, where you've got 22 men in desperate need of rest being cheered on by 80,000 people in desperate need of exercise. And that's not what the church should look like. Everybody serves, and one of the things I'm gonna challenge you to do is during response time, you think about, are you serving? Am I serving? And God, how can I take a next step? So Jesus would say, not just about my church, but about me, that we are serving and persevering and making a difference in the community. And let me give you just one more, one more. I think Jesus would say, remember that being right is not as important as being together. Being right is not as important as being together. Church at Pergamum, in fact, there were a couple of them that he said this about. He said, I've seen your deeds, a lot of good stuff going on. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught uh, Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. We are familiar with sexual immorality. We don't understand what food sacrificed to idols, which led to all of that, really means. Let me give you just a minute of background, and then I want to make an application to each one of us. The New Testament church, we're all Jewish. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. Um, all of the apostles were Jewish. The New Testament was Jewish until after Jesus ascended into heaven, some Gentiles, like you and I, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, started to become believers in what they called the way, and the church got messy. See, churches are a lot easier when everybody looks like each other and votes the same way and they're about the same age. Can I just tell you? It is. It's just easier that way. But it's not what God intended. The, the Jesus way is that, uh, and a lot more fun, when you have all ages, all races, all different spectrums of the political scale, and that's what it became. And so, and so it got messy. Now, I saw an example of that just this week. Debbie and I were invited to a Shabbat dinner with our Jewish friends. I'm real good friends with the Jewish uh, Orthodox rabbi here in, in Mount Pleasant, and every once in a while he'll invite us to come and celebrate the Friday night Shabbat dinner. And, and uh, this week we were also celebrating the Sukkot, and I'm not gonna tell you what that is, Google it, you can figure that out. But uh, the last time I went, about three years ago, I really messed up. I did not represent us well, because I didn't do my homework. I'm a Gentile. I figured everybody was just like me. I like hugging people. You know, some people say, well, Seraphs don't like to hug. No, that's my brother. I like to hug people. And so I came into this setting and I didn't realize that for some Orthodox Jews that during certain religious seasons that Gentiles are unclean and you don't want to hug a Gentile. And so I come on just hugging everybody and one lady gave me a stiff arm like this, you know, unclean, unclean, you know. And so I went home, I apologized, and I figured it out. Now this time, Debbie says to me, her instructions before we leave is, don't touch anybody, don't say anything, just be quiet and eat whatever they serve you in front of you. And I did good. But I made their meeting a lot more complicated. And that was like the New Testament church. Here's what happened. The Jews had a law that you couldn't eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, that had been dedicated to an idol. And that was part of their deal. It was not kosher. 
And the Gentiles were in an area that was just saturated with idol worship, and it just wasn't a big deal. It really, it, it really wasn't. It was like, you know, God made the meat, and it doesn't matter what it's been before. I'm going to eat it. Everything's fine. Just, you know, give me my burger, a few fries, tomato, lettuce. I'm good. It's not a big deal. But the Jews saw it differently. You know, and their Harris Teeter would have two separate sections, one offered to idols and one kosher. And it got to be a really hot topic at the church. And so in uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, the church leaders decided in order to keep peace in the church, that believers should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. So that at the church potluck, the Jewish people could have a certain sense of confidence that their brisket had not been sacrificed to an idol. Now, actually, the Gentiles were right in this matter. Meat is meat. It's all given by God. But preserving the unity of the church was more important than being right. Now, Paul, if you want to study this, later establishes a don't ask, don't tell policy for the Gentiles. He said, if you're eating at an unbeliever's house and he serves up a nice juicy steak, don't ask him where he got it. Just eat it. Everything's cool. It's all from God. You look it up. It's in the Bible. But if he announces, this has been sacrificed to idols, take a pass. Because it's not being right. It's doing the right thing. It's upholding the unity of the church that was so important. And Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, you aren't careful about unity issues. And it's leading to other kinds of sins, specifically sexual immorality. So how do I apply that to today? I'm glad you asked. This is my favorite part of the message. Jesus, I think, would say to us, in the current political and racial tension in your country, it's a great opportunity for the church to be the church. For the church to say, it's not important that I be right on Facebook. It's not important that I be right on television. It's not important that I be right in social circles. It's important that I maintain the unity of the church. That's more important than being right. See, it's doing the right thing. It's loving God and one another. Did you know that's the only command that Jesus gives is that we love one another? It's serving the community around you. It's getting to know each other and be willing to limit your liberty and what is right so that you can learn to get along with people who don't see life the way that you do. You know, there are gonna be issues that are, that are gonna come up all the time uh, in social media, on the news, in our government, that are going to divide our country and divide our church. Can I give you one of them? Today you're going to go watch some football, and you may very well see some African-American football players who bow their knee during the national anthem. And some of you are going to be tempted on both sides to post things on Facebook, to talk about what you think, all that kind of thing. I've done a little research on this among only Christians. And what I have found is that most of the white Christians believe that that's wrong and it desecrates the flag. But here's what I've also found, is that most 
black, not all, most black believers think it's about a bigger issue and it's about a racial injustice that needs to be addressed, okay? And so here's what I did, is I went to a guy who's a good friend of mine. <laughs> Please don't beat that baby, it'll be okay. <laughs> But I'm glad you took them out. <laughs> Just being real. <laughs> we had somebody pass out in the last service. We had EMS everywhere, so it's been a challenging week. But anyway, <laughs> so, so I, I went to a friend of mine who's a veteran and was very upset about the issue. And I, and I sat down and I had dinner with him. And I said, tell me how you feel. And he told me how he felt and I understood him better. And then I went to one of my friends who happens to be on staff here, who's an African-American, who sees it differently. And I had lunch with him. And I said, tell me how you feel. And he explained a different perspective to me. And here's what I thought. I thought, wouldn't it be great if my veteran friend would sit down and spend a meal with my African-American friend that sees it different, and they both love Jesus. And rather than being worried about what is right, we concern ourselves with doing the right thing. Huh? And I don't know what that is exactly, but I know the conversations are good. I know the conversations are good. And then I thought, what if we just did that regularly? What if you did that? What if when an issue came up, rather than just knee-jerk one side or the other, this one, what if you found somebody in your social circle that looked different than you, maybe votes different than you, maybe sees life different than you, even like our Friday night friends who see theology different than, than I do, but they love God. What if you sat down with them? And what if, you, what if you just discussed these issues rather than throwing barbs? See, I don't believe, I don't believe that these issues are gonna be solved in Washington. I thank God for the leaders that lead us in Washington. I think these issues are gonna be solved when we sit down together as believers around a table and eat, because eating's important. <laughs> Finally got an amen on that deal. And we say, you know, we're all believers. And we see life differently. But we're gonna, we're gonna be more concerned about doing good than we are about being right. See, I'm glad that in that New Testament church, they didn't split into the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. He said, you're all gonna be together. You're all gonna be one. You're all gonna have to learn it to work it out. And these days, we oughtn't to split into a Republican church and a Democrat church. There's a lot of that, and it's a lot easier. You can talk about certain things, but that's not the will of God. It's not about being a black church or a white church or a young church or an old church or a cat lover's church and everybody else. <laughs> it's about do you love Jesus? And so do I. And let's figure out how together we can do the right thing rather than having to be right all of the time. I believe that so passionately. And I believe that's the future for our church as we lead through these issues. So what would Jesus say to you? If he checked your vital signs, what would he find? Would he say, you know what, you're doing a lot of good stuff, but it kind of feels like you've lost your first love. Would he say, 
I love how your church serves, but I want you to make a difference. I want you to serve. Would he say, I love your desire for truth, but I've got some kids who see truth from a little different angle, and I'd like you to get to know them better so you'll understand them like I do. Maybe he's saying, if there's nobody that doesn't see life like you in your circle of friends, you need to expand your circle. You need to expand your circle. So what's God saying to you? And what are you gonna do about it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kingdom. I thank you for the fact that you love us. And you've created each one of us. And it's messy anytime you have more than two people together. But I love it because that's where we learn to love one another deeply. And so God, I pray that in these moments that you would search our hearts, give us a, an exam, a spiritual exam. We'll respond to you. In your name we pray, amen, amen.